Hello and welcome back to the Game Pit Podcast. This is episode 137. I'm Sean and Ronan. We are kicking into Essen Fever with the first of our treasure hunts. We really are, Sean. It's that time of year where we look forward to the Spiel Fair in Essen. We're going to be going for a couple of days and we have a look the same as everyone else does out there. And we look at rule books and we look at videos and we scour the internet and we're trying to decide out of those over a thousand releases which ones will make it back in the boxes and suitcases and bags and donkeys and internal cavities back to us in the UK to carry on playing. And we dub games having not played them, so basically guess whether they are treasures or they are traps. Yes, we get in a little bit of trouble sometimes with, with publishers and designers, but as we always state, and as Ronan has stated, and I want to reiterate, we have not played these games, we are just guessing from afar. So it's a bit of fun. I remember when we first started to do it, Sean, six essence ago, and we thought it was a bad idea and people wouldn't like it. And people always talk to us about these episodes and they like them and they say it helps when they're preparing or it's just, I think it's nice to feel part of the build-up because everyone's doing this. Everyone's looking at the releases and deciding what they might want. And at least it's a feeling of a, a shared anxiety we're all going through. I don't know what the best games are going to be to come from this year's Essen. I probably don't know what they were from last year's Essen yet. But, but this is some fun where we might hopefully guide you in maybe the right direction. I think we just do a bit of the, the groundwork for people, don't we? So they can rule out the games that we talk about, because obviously it's all nonsense. Well, fair enough. All right. So we've got 12 games this time. We're going to give you a guess at them. We're going to do a quick little summary of how they play. Obviously, we're not going to know that because we haven't played them a lot, or at all, rather. So we're not going to know the ins and outs. But we'll give you an idea, see if that catches your eye. We'll talk about a couple of things, whether, whether they're good or bad on first impression, and then we'll both give you a verdict of treasure or trap. How does that sound? Lovely road. And what are you going to kick us off with? Well, I'm going to start off with Castello Mathoni. This is a three to five player game taking around 45 minutes from Leo Cotavini, designer of Cartagena Masons, one of Sean's favourites. Hey. <laughs> and coming from Mandu Games, you brought Wang Do and Spring Rally at last uh, Essen and Papering Jewel, one which we have reviewed. So the game is played on a hexagonal board. And that hexagonal board is split into triangles and there's different terrains for these triangles. On your turn, you're going to play one or two cards and the cards show different variations of these terrains. When you play that card, you can build or trade. Now, when you build, you place one wall and it has to be adjacent to the terrain of the card you've played. Then you put one of your own houses on a triangle one side of the wall and you choose your left or right neighbour and put their house on the other side of that wall. By placing a wall, if you close off an area completely, that area becomes a domain. But in order to do that, you're going to have to pay some money. And everyone starts with some money. You're going to have to pay to the bank per space. And you're going to have to pay to other players per their house that was in there. Now, once it becomes a domain, if there are three houses together of one color, they become a tower. And that's good for whoever owned those three houses because towers are going to earn them more money as the game goes on. Once you claim a domain, you can carry on paying to claim adjacent domains. But for that, you're going to have to pay the owner of that adjacent domain per space that's in there for houses that are in there. And for each tower, that's now worth five rather than the three that the basic three houses would have been. It doesn't matter who owned them. The, the owner of that area actually gets all that. So it's a lot about claiming areas and then taking them off each other, making sure you're getting enough money. Now, the other action you can do, that's the build action. There's the trade action. There are six markets on the board. They are each correspond to one of the six different terrains. They get 
activated by being played on being part of a domain. Once they are activated, you can then hand in a card of that particular terrain that the market is linked to, and that can earn you gold, and that's how you're going to get gold back in order to make domains and claim adjacent ones, and so on. When the last wall is placed, that is the end of the game, and you're going to score points. Now, each domain that's yours has got your own marker in there to say, this is mine. For every land space that's in there, you're going to score three points. For every gold you've got left over, you're going to score a point. At the beginning of the game, everyone's going to get an objective card with three of the six terrains on there. And for every space of that that you control, that's going to score you one point. And then for the number of towers you've got out, you're going to do pyramidal scoring for getting up to your four towers out. Sean, that's how you play Castello Mathoni. It's from Leo Colavini, who is an interesting designer. He's been around for a long, long time. Just from the games I listed at the top, he is hit and miss. And I was actually surprised. A lot more misses than I thought he had. But also some that have had decent reception, like Atlantis, I love as a, as a base game, uh, as a gateway game. Matterhorn, the dice game that I think I liked a bit more than you from last year, but it was an mm-hmm. enjoyable climbing game from Helvetique. Your thoughts maybe on first impressions, thoughts on Leo Colavini, where are we going with this one? The first impressions one, this is an impressive eye-catching beast on the table, Roland. Or at least it seems to be from afar. So I don't have to talk about it from afar, do I? No, you don't. <laughs> Pull back the fourth ball here. I have a copy, but it's unplayed because I wouldn't have played it before we did a treasure hunt, but it is sitting next to me. The production makes me happy. It looks like a high-end 2008 game, and that's a happy place for me. So, <laughs> so it makes me feel good. It's not going to be beating out any Seymour games or anything like that. But it's all clear, it's colourful, real plastic bits, a bit reminiscent of old Manhattan, but a bit nicer. But the whole, you know, it's a simple game, but they haven't made it plain. They've also made it very, very easy to tell things apart. So the colours are quite bright, the the board itself is quite bright, but your, your own player pieces stand out from the board as well. So it's very easy to see at a glance. So I watched a quick playthrough where they speeded up the play times 20, and I could almost tell exactly what they were doing, even at that speed, because it is so clear and so easy to tell apart, which I think is a great start for the game. And it has to be, because this is a completely abstract puzzle. So when you're making your decisions, there's no theme to hang on. It's just, is this the right move for me at this right time? Am I making money? Am I spending money? Am I claiming points? And unless that's easy to see, that's not going to work at all. And I think whether the Castello Mathoni works for you is going to be whether you're willing to engage in that completely abstract, albeit dynamic and interactive, but abstract puzzle. Yeah, there's a couple of things that seem to be good on there. So there seems to be two ways to victory, because money seems to be equally as powerful as the land grabbing. Obviously, you have to do some of the land grabbing to get the the money but also the the balance in there as well you've always got pay players when you take their area away from them so they're getting something you're having to give something up so it makes you slightly weaker money wise them slightly stronger so they're more likely to come back and attack you so i think that there's an inbuilt balance there yeah and obviously it's balanced by the fact that you have to put someone else's house down every time you put a wall so there's always going to be these alliances and you're always going to be affecting the people around you. And, and you're going to have to be aware how that affects the other players. I think you can't have a player putting down a wall and not really caring what's going on. Everyone's going to have to be in there and understanding what the connotations of each action is once you're getting, you know, not the first couple of walls, once you're getting into playing the game a little bit. I've got one slight concern for the game, Ronan. Will it suffer from having that one poor player who's going to make bad decisions to help the players either side of them? 
And obviously the people across the table from that one poor player can't affect it in either way. So uh, that's that's the one thing that kind of makes me think, well, it could affect it. Well, that just happens from an interactive game. I don't think you can... If you if you have a poor player in an active game, that can happen. What what can you do? <laughs> you can't design non-interactive games to mitigate for that sort of thing. If it happens, it happens. Group dependent, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah fair enough. Well, one, I'm going to kick off and I am going to give Castello Mattoni a, a fairly strong thumbs up and a treasure, which is, for me, is, is quite a strong treasure because I'm not really into this type of game. That is interesting. Probably not quite as strong as you, but I am leaning towards treasure for this one. So I'm going to give it, it's going to get a double treasure from us, and hopefully I'll get it played before Essen and sometime around the fair we'll release the first impressions on it. Lovely. Okay, so my first game has actually been out a little bit now and there's reviews starting to float around because when I chose it first, obviously that wasn't the case. It is Mystery House Adventures in a Box coming from Cranio Creations. So this one is based heavily on escape rooms. Uh, Mystery House is a, a place that mysteriously moves through space and time and nobody knows its destination. That's about all the theme there is. So what we have here is a game where the box itself is hugely functional and coupled with an app becomes a physical part of the gameplay. The base game itself comes with two adventure boxes in and they in turn comprise of a number of location cards that are going to slot into the box to form rooms and locations within the box. They are all titled with grid references of A1, B1, etc. and visible to all players. The adventure boxes also come with a number of object cards. Once you have fired up the app, you will have 60 minutes to solve the puzzle that the house offers. Players will physically look into the windows of this house or box and note what they see. When they see something they want to inspect, they're going to tap that location coordinates into the app and be presented with a number of objects and they're going to choose the one they wish to inspect. Should they tap an object that's not actually in the room, they're going to deduct 20 seconds from the timer. If it is present, you can't, but you can't take it. The app will describe it. If you can take it, you get to the object card to further analyse. Now you can try to use the object once you think you know how you can use it. The app will guide you to remove location cards to allow you to see what's beyond the opening and open up more objects and puzzles. You're going to keep on exploring, interacting, solving puzzles and riddles until you win or lose the game. Ronan, I'm going to fire a question at you. Is this a gimmick? It is a gimmick. (laughs) Obviously. Of course it's a gimmick. But what a gimmick. (laughs) That's the whole thing. Is there a single well, okay, there's more there's the vast majority of players that you say this to, or even non-gamers, will go, Oh, that's something new. That's exciting. I want to have a look at this. It is one of the best hooks of the year, I think, to be like, hold on, you pick it up and you look inside, and it's different every time. It, it does remind me, you say it a lot, I'll say it this time, of like a childhood game, and that wonder of, oh, oh I, I actually wonder what's in there. It does. It looks very impressive, and and that, again, that thought of actually looking into the house, looking to pick up minute detail. Possibly, they suggest using an iPhone torch to see into the the deeper nooks and crannies. But yeah, really, really. They suggest pretty. that people who've played it don't, but they do. Go on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my concerns, Ronan. Are people with poor eyesight going to be able to play this game? I'm guessing no. Yeah, so I'm not even. I think like, people with good eyesight can't play. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this has been a tough year for Cranio. 
and they're getting kicked. The whole barrage fiasco with the poor. We're going to review barrage sometime soon, by the way. But I think, if you don't know, it came from a Kickstarter. It was promised to be like mind-blowing components, the best ever. And it's got some real shoddy components in there, to the point where they have to replace them. And they're not. They're running a second Kickstarter campaign where you have to, only for like a euro or whatever, but you have to order the replacements. They're in a funny situation. They were, they were a very well-respected Euro game maker who's clearly tried to branch out, got more ambitious in their production with Barrage and with Mystery House. And I don't think either of them appear to have gone that well. I know Barrage hasn't. Mystery House, Sean, there's a few issues with it. One of them is the lighting. People saying that it, it, the, the beam from an iPhone, your smartphone, is not focused enough. You need to go out and buy an actual handheld LED torch for it to work properly. Oh, really? The fact that the app is a little bit ropey. The fact that there are very similar objects, because there's a list of objects to interact with, and what you want to interact with might be a chest of drawers, but it could come up there as an armoire or a wardrobe or a trunk or a this yeah, or a that. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Whichever one you press, you're going to lose time just for not, you know, synonyms for similar things. There's no hint system on that app. They've extended themselves. I'm not sure they've covered themselves in glory. Credio, I don't want to sort of jump all over Credio. The Credio have always seemed like a, a really innovative company, make make very good games in general, but they've never, to me, from the outside, have seemed the most organized. So when you start to, to build up, your repertoire and and go into the markets that they are now with app driven games and really sort of big kickstarters then you really do need to have someone that's going to dot your i's and cross your t's and and have that all in place and they didn't seem like that company to me so maybe a partner somewhere along the line that's going to sort of help them along the way maybe you're you're now telling game producers yeah i am yeah so um is that what i'm going (laughs) What is it? Is it a trap or a treasure? You started off quite positive. You finished quite negative. I don't know where you're going to go with this. Okay, I feel like because this is a game, a show in which we're trying to give some sort of recommendations, I have to go trap because there are too many reported issues. It doesn't seem polished enough. There are simple wins there which they haven't done for themselves. But I definitely definitely want to play it and only the reason i know that you're going to buy it is the only reason it's not going to be on my purchase list because i know you're going to buy it because you're so excited about it so in a general trap but there's no nothing's going to stop me from having a look at it and finding out because it's such a great idea yeah i've pre-ordered it it will it shall be mine so i'm, I'm looking forward to it in, in the same way as i was really excited about the game i can't remember the name of where you're you're in the Egyptian and you're looking through your iPhone. Oh, <laughs> were you going through the maze? Yeah. Ah, oh, Mask of Anubis. Mask of Anubis, that's the one. Don't do that to me, man. <laughs> I'm getting old, I can't do this. So I was really excited about just the thought of Mask of Anubis. I wasn't sure if it was going to work. It turns out it did. But again, I'm not sure if this is going to work, but just the thought of it, if they can pull it off, it would be brilliant. If it's not great, then... It's not that much money. It's it's quite a low price point. So I'm going to say a tentative treasure for me. Very good. Okay, game number three. Now, bear with us. There's a couple of heavy euros in this episode. <laughs> Try and explain a heavy euro when you've never played <laughs> Not that easy. So I'm going to try and keep this some sort of sense. Stick with me. I won't be here forever. It is Throne of Allegoria. It's a two to four player game. It's going to take around two hours. 
It's designed by Robin Lees and Steve McKenzie, who designed Beyond Baker Street. And it's from Spielwerks, who are known for doing heavier Euros. Arkwright, Gentiers, Captains of the Gulf last year. Now, the Queen is dying of Allegoria, and there's six weeks to go. And amongst the players, whoever's most successful in these six weeks, she might die at some point before it's six weeks over, but that's what there's going to be a new monarch crowned. The most successful one's going to be the new monarch. Okay. We'll go through the phases. First thing that's going to happen is there are going to be events at the end of every round. One, there might be that the Queen dies. When the Queen dies, she changes which events happen because every event card's got two things on it, up, alive or dead. And then booster cards are drawn. I've called them booster cards. It's not the name of the game, but they allow you to boost up certain tracks and make your actions more effective in the game. So we can see what the booster cards are. Then each player is going to be bidding face down with sets of markers for the seven possible actions they can take during the course of the game. So we go around the table one by one, put in a face down marker in a particular area. Players can see where you've bid, but they don't know what value you've bid. Now they're all low values. One of them's a zero, so obviously that's a bluff. One of them can be a two, but it costs you get a bonus if you don't use it as a two. And you're all looking to see, okay, maybe they're going there, maybe they're not, maybe they're bluffing with no actual information until all the bids are done. And then all of those markers are gonna get flipped over. We're gonna add up who's got the highest value, ties broken by who went into that spot first. And then the value of bids you put in there is going to allow you to take your place in the hierarchy of strength of actions to be taken. What are you going to be able to do with those seven actions? Well, one is you can draw what are in effect objective cards, which give you things to do over the course of the game. If you do them, they're going to score you some points. If you don't know, they're going to cost you three points at the end of the game. Next thing is you're going to be able to claim what are called workforce cards, which can allow you to boost the actions that you take. What's interesting here is that the person who's gone there but done the lowest bid gets to do an I split you choose where they split the cards up into different areas and then the person who went highest gets first choice of which group of those cards to take. Interesting. Okay. Next three are all quite similar. They're soldier, spy and merchant actions. What they do is turn your pool of 10 workers, which are generic, you then put them onto the board into your own realm in a specific area and if they go into... A, for example, into the market, they will now be a merchant and able to take actions for you. And like I say, it can be soldier spies or merchants. The other thing you can do while doing that is those booster cards I was talking about, you can use those to boost your town up because there are various tracks in your town and the higher up those are, obviously, the more impressive you are. For example, if you boost up your military track, you can move more soldiers during an action. Or if you boost up your wealth, you'll be able to trade more efficiently. So that's what the cards that you're bidding on are for and you can see them at the beginning of the round. With the soldiers... You can put them into there, into the battlefield, then you can move them around via a central area to other people's areas, and then you can possibly attack. When you're in their attack, you roll a die, it's weighted from one to four, it's a six-sided die, there's more in the middle. You add the value of your soldiers, and if you're victorious, if you've got more than the person you're attacking, you get to score points and remove soldiers. You have to move one of yours and one of theirs anyway, but you can move more of their soldiers, leaving them more vulnerable to other attacks. And that number that you can move is this works the same for spying, when you spy, you go in and you attack, and that's going to boost you up something called the diplomacy track. When you use merchants, it lets you go to other people's markets and then manipulate the tracks on your board, your town tracks, which are going to score you points at the end of the game, depending upon which traveling merchant card is out this round. So it's going to be different every single round, but you see at the beginning exactly what you can do and how you can use your merchants on this time around. There are two other types of sort of virtual specialists you can turn your workers into on these seven actions. You can get bankers, which boost your wealth, which help you do your, those merchant actions I was talking about. They also let you claim guilds. There are 
seven guilds in the game, I think, or maybe five. I've forgotten, Sean. But anyway, you can put a maximum of two of them into play so that those guilds are the most powerful ones in your town and they will boost certain things for you. Or you can claim more objective cards using these bankers. For scholars, you can draw more of those workshop cards. I've been talking about the boosty cards. Though you can also use a scholar to go up something called the arms track, or you can boost the other tracks within your town to make you more effective at military or spying on merchants or whatever it might be. Game is going to end after six rounds of this bidding, turning your workers into specialists, moving around the place, and taking various actions and interacting with each other. You're going to score points for having those guilds, for doing your objective cards, lose points if you haven't done objective cards. The diplomacy track I mentioned with the spies will score you points. The arms track with the scholars will score you points. And all the tracks in your town are going to score you points. The last thing to get to, though, is the, is the major way in which you're going to lose points. For a lot of these actions, you can take an anarchy marker in order to boost it slightly, or certain actions means you must take an anarchy marker. These anarchy markers come off a particular track. As they come off, they increase the multiplier, which is a multiplier for negative points per anarchy marker you've taken. So the more anarchy there is in the game, the more anarchy markers are going to cost you more at the end of the game. So you can try and be more powerful, but you're disrupting the smooth running. So you add up for how well you've run your town, you lose points for your objectives and your anarchy markers, and at the end, six rounds, whoever's got the most points will be the winner and claim the throne of Allegoria. Sean, did it make any sense? Absolutely none. Very good. That's good to hear. Okay. There's there's a lot going on. There's a big old rule book, and I think this is the earliest I've ever got S and rules blindness. <laughs> that was that was like ten other rule books. <laughs> we should talk about something here, and while we talk about it, it should mean that we're probably going to be sporadically bored soon. Don't listen to that episode of Sporadically Bored because it's what we're going to be talking about there. But anyway, the way we prepare for these episodes is very different, right? Mm-hmm. I will read a rule book. And grok to some... There's always surprises when you actually play the game, but to some, I get an idea of the flow of the game. Get a, you don't like reading rule books. No, the way I would le- learn a game from a rule book is by having all the components out on the table in front of me, and I would liken the components to what they actually do. So, okay, that one moves there, and that's why that does that, and that's why it's called that. Oh, I get it now. Brilliant. That's why theme's often quite important to me, because I can go, oh, okay, that's... That's the warrior because he's attacking that. Brilliant. Okay, I know, but to just you know, I, I couldn't. I couldn't teach a complicated game just from the rule book. I would have to do that to be able to teach it and learn it. Mm. I can get. A, I get an idea. I find that they tend to be just words to me. If I can get any other type of media, whether it's a podcast or or a preview on YouTube of it, then brilliant. That that will give me the ability to then read the rule book and understand it a lot better. So there's no video for Throne of Allegoria. <laughs> You're not happy. <laughs> there's no there's no video. I looked at the rule book. I went, I need a video. And then I cursed your name. There will be a video because I'm going to be making one after the show. Does that help? No, not really. Okay, good. So now that we've explained Noi for why you <laughs> watch me learn these games, I'm not sure how much you're going to throw at me now. Okay, so uh, there is a lot going on in the game. Now, my initial concern for the game is it won't stand out of the crowd. It looks very Euro. It doesn't. There's nothing particularly appealing about the look of the game. So whether it's good or bad or in the middle, that I, I worry that it's not really going to get the views of it to make it to make for people to make an informed choice. Spielwerks, though, if if you like this weight of Euro, you probably know Spielwerks are because this is where they specialise. 
and therefore they will have and it's it's not small they will have their own loyal customers who will buy every game that they do Fair that comes out okay. and they're looking for and, and i include myself amongst them that you look for the spielbergs uh, and you say they great that's it i'm definitely getting that i have trust in that company okay so this will get the basis of an audience I was quite surprised with Captains of the Gulf that it wasn't a bigger hit, to be honest with you, last year. And that, again, it kind of stayed. The, the experience seems to be almost waiting for a big breakout hit, like maybe DLP have had or Fulland Spiel have had. Yeah. And almost waiting to step up. But I don't know whether he wants to or not, because he works for another games company. So I don't know that he... It, these are almost like his sideline that he does, where he takes what he thinks will be more niche games and, and sort of publish them for his own business. Yeah, and they kind of so. they kind of tend to publish things just once only, and maybe let other companies take them on. Or like Deluvia Project kind of disappeared. I think TMG are finally taking it on this year, but it came out in Essen. A lot of people got a lot of buzz around it, and then just disappeared. And it's impossible to get a copy. Or oh, Gentes got picked up, and after a while, it got reprinted. Yeah, they tend to be very highly rated games, but. It's kind of like an 18xx rating. They're being highly rated because the people that like their games buy their games and therefore know they're going to like them. There's a bias there. It's it's a loyal, happy audience that he's got. Fair enough. Okay, so there's a couple of aspects I really do like about the game. You mentioned it in your spiel there, Ronan. I like that you can gain from being the lowest bidder. Obviously, you've got to bid something. You can't be a zero bidder, but the lowest bidder who has bid some sort of uh, made some sort of bid, can benefit and can sort of alter what other people are doing. I like that. Yeah, it's only for one of the seven actions, but I th- it does look important. And that one action, because you're choosing those workforce cards, that will boost all the other things and allow you to push things up because via aspiring actions, you can knock people's tracks down. And let's say I knocked your military all the way down. You couldn't move your soldiers very yeah. efficiently around the board then. And you can never get directly from your area to someone else's area. You have to go through a central area. So if you can't move quickly, I'm kind of safer. So you need that way to boost back up to put me under threat for certain things. Mm. And I, that ice split you choose really did hook me. I was like, oh, yeah. that easy. That was, I did think there was more than one. one but I'll, I'll bow to your, your, your wisdom on it. I, I thought there was more than one aspect. Either of us could be wrong. <laughs> it's very simple technique in bidding games. I like that there's zero bids so you can do a bit of bluffing. Absolutely fantastic. My Francis Drake there. The whole thing's a bit Francis Drake. Yeah. My one concern, and it is a big concern, it kind of encompasses the whole game, is I feel that I would need somebody to, to walk me through the game. And I think it would almost, from afar, I think it would almost need a kind of a rules person to be sitting there watching what everyone's doing because I think there could be a lot of mistakes made in this. If you didn't then had that person watching over you, correcting you, whatever you, are they not playing the game for you? It is going to be a fun experience. So I don't know. It might be a bit too deep for me. The proof will be in the eating of the pudding, Ronan. Well said, well said. I'm going to disagree with you, but mm. I think you put it well. <laughs> I think the actual actions are quite simple. And there's only seven of them, and they sort of come in clusters. And it's this very simple thing of I move my merchants one or two spaces, and when they're there, that's the thing that they can do. So that wouldn't be my concern. I actually think that once you get the rule book and you get it and you get it out, it's going to be, oh, okay, it's just seven rounds of bidding, seven rounds of actions, and we know this all makes sense. My concern would be there are too many tracks. There are five tracks per town. There's an arms track. There's a diplomacy track. I think there's another track somewhere. There's the anarchy track. 
it's all of them moving up and down could feel a bit point sanity where you're like, okay, I moved two here or one up there or one down there. Whether that all coalesces into a, a narrative that makes sense that I'm actually, I'm not just everything I do moves something. I'm choosing specifically to focus in certain areas and win certain bids rather than just dobbing in anywhere that I can get in in order just to get something out of it. But anyway, Sean, Throne of Allegoria, what's your verdict on it? There's definite aspects I like of it, Ronan. I'm, I'm definitely looking, look, quite looking forward to giving it a go. But for the moment, it's a tentative trap because I'm a little bit frightened by it. I think it might be a bit too deep for me. Bless you. I'll hold your hand and walk you through it, and then you'll destroy me at it, like you usually do. And I'm going to say Throne of Allegoria. You can probably tell by my excitement about it. Definite treasure. Really looking forward to it. And I will be doing the video, and we will be playing this, Sean, so people will hear our thoughts. Very good. Okay, so my second game and fourth game of the episode is Nocturian from George Squarkis and Vesuvius Media, playing two to four players. The backstory is the Evergreen Empire is in ruins, I tell you. And we are a noble family who are charged with restoring the world. Best performing family is going to become the steward of the empire. And to do that, you're going to have to score the most prestige to win. So what you have in front of you is a big one of those big map boards. And there's going to be randomized locations on this board. The main game mechanism in this is dice worker placement. So the first phase is going to be the acquisition phase. You're going to roll one die per player. And there's some players could have bonus dice, so you roll those as well. And each player is going to take a turn choosing one die. Then you're going to move into the action phase, where you're going to place that die in a location that allows the result. So if, if a location only allows a one or a six, then you have to place a one or a six in there. You then collect a resource if it, if it offers one. And there is what's called a season tracker in the middle of the board. And this is very important because you are going to move the season tracker to uh, the next appearance of that resource. One point part of the season tracker will point up, point to an area and will double the resources you get from that area. The other side of the season tracker will point to another area and will replenish that area for good. So once they've been taken, they won't replenish until that part of the season tracker points at them on somebody's go and there are limited resources in the game you also have a location ability and these are things you can get the start play you can get extra dice for the next round you can swap your resources around you can give curses to each other you can remove those curses and and another important thing is summon beasts when you summon beasts you're going to get them into your hand by spending resources they also give you points. The next thing you can do is use beasts. They're going to give you a special power on their cards, and effectively more beasts means more actions for you. But they can also manipulate the dice. You can reserve your die so you don't have an action this turn, or you can forge legendary heirlooms to go on your player board, and this is going to give you points for bonus sets, and they also link into the next thing you can do which is complete quests that you're going to pay resources and have certain amount of heirlooms to get points and this is effectively the mainstay of your point scoring yeah, you move on to the cleanup phase where you're going to move your mar the marker and replenish the season tracker and 
that's pretty much it, Ronan. There's not a lot more to this one. You're going to be moving to location, collecting resources, bringing beasts into your hand, using the beasts for their special powers to, to basically go on these quests and get victory points. There are victory points elsewhere, but that's the main way. So what were your thoughts on this one? It was a Kickstarter, I believe. It was a Kickstarter, and it's been delivered to a few people. And I've, it was quite interesting reading the comments because, Ooh. to me, when I was going through it, the comments suggested that the rulebook isn't fantastic. The game is a little bit different, maybe differently paced to other games, and therefore it was causing problems in first plays. And there's quite a few negative reviews from one or two plays. Ooh. But there's also... A fair number of reviews that say that our first game took two and a half hours and it was a mess. We stuck with it. We worked it out. I actually were really enjoying it. And this rating has gone up and up and up. And that, to me, has caught my interest that, oh, it's a shame that there's a bad rule book and it's awkward to get into. That is going to stop it from being a big hit at any time that will happen. But there must be more there than meets the eye. Yeah, so my first concern... Well, when I was looking at anything, I was thinking, there's not really a lot of action spaces. There's 12 action spaces, and if you're going to be playing to those time and time again, especially when you get extra dice into your hand, they're going to get quite repetitive. And then I started looking at the beast cards, and they give you extra powers. And then I started looking at some of the powers you get on your player board, and that gives you extra powers. It gives you more things to do. So, yeah, I think repeated plays and be- being better at the game will certainly sort of prolong your enjoyment of the game. I think there's two two things to throw back it there from there. Yeah. Firstly, the big positive is that, and again, this has come out, that people love the customization with the beasts, that it's not obvious what the timings are for them and what the combos can be, and that actually playing again and again, you'll learn the deck, you'll learn which beast might come out, and we'll learn how to trigger certain ones off each other to really maximise them. Right. So that sounds promising. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. The second thing would be, there's a maximum two dice per player in each round. Yes, that's correct. But it, it, apparently there was a mess in the, up in the rulebook or it wasn't quite clear that it sounds like you could have more and people thought they didn't get enough dice in the game. The components should be more. There's a limit. You have two. And in a dice drafting game, having that sort of tightness, it appeals to me because it, we're not going around going, right, everyone takes a six and everyone takes the next highest and we're going on in eight rounds that year, right, and everyone's got a one that's useless. It's tight, it's focused, I need that particular one and this particular one and I need to maximise them. And yeah, like I say, that's, the, I like that, you know, this dice goes with that beast, therefore it might not be the obvious choice, but it's the one I need to take right now. So, yeah, the season tracker, Ronan, in the middle of the board, on the rule book, that makes that quite sound quite sort of convoluted and quite hard to understand. It's not really, is it? It's not. You if I take if I take wood as my resource, I move the tracker to wood. If the arrow points <laughs> at that same arrow direction as I was in, I get double wood. If it doesn't, I yeah. don't. And wherever yeah. the other side of the arrow points is gets their resources replenished. Really easy. The rule book goes to great lengths to make that sound difficult. Yeah, like I say, problems of that rule book making it sound like a more complicated game than it is, which I could see could cause possible disappointment in the Kickstarter backers, thinking they're getting something a bit heavier, deeper and longer, and actually getting a quite quick-paced dice drafter. Yeah, and normally you're depend- quite dependent on dice rolls. 
but it seems like you can manipulate them with the more beasts you get into your hands, the more you can manipulate those dice rolls. And the season marker itself can be predicted because you can see where other people might be going on their turn. So where it started for me, there were loads of questions. I was quite worried about it. I started to see, actually, you know what, that could happen and that could happen. So yeah, a bit, bit more faith in it. Even in our research, it seems to have been like a slow grower in that we started going, oh, I don't know. And then we started, oh, maybe, oh, that maybe. Mm. <laughs> so I'd have to stick on a pair of gloves and possibly an apron and some safety goggles. And I know from other people's comments and pain that you've got to stick with it and not play it once or twice and get through to get to the best of it. But I am, surprisingly, and I didn't think I was going to, I'm going to give Nocturian a treasure. Oh, man, I thought you, until you started talking, obviously, I thought you were going to coat this. It, it's an easy one to dismiss. Yeah. But true. I think it might be worth sticking with. For me, I think I'm just going to sort of fall slightly on the trap side. I think there's still oh. just a few too many questions about it. And You're hard tonight, man. Whether I, I don't know whether I'd give it the plays that it would, that it might need. I want, I want to like it. I think I probably would like it, but at the moment, too many questions running, so it's going to be a trap. Oh damn! Oh, damn. Okay. So we move on to War of the Worlds, a two-player game taking around sixty minutes, designed by Dennis Plastinin who designed Badlands, who I haven't heard of, but is well-rated by those players who have played it, and Grey Fox Games, Champions of Midgard, Deception Murder in Hong Kong, Mythos Tales, and many others. This is a two-player deck-building game themed around the War of the Worlds in which one player is the USOs and the other person is the human population of Britain fighting back. The aliens are attempting to remove a certain amount of population from Britain, and the humans are attempting to do 30 damage to the aliens, and whoever does that first will be the winner in this head-to-head game. Players start with their own individual decks of 20 cards. On every turn, you're going to draw five. You have to play all five cards that you've drawn, and you're going to be looking at a particular offer because you have two separate decks completely some of the cards gets laid out like a market from your deck you've got an offer in which you can use these cards you're playing in order to buy more cards to bring into your deck obviously it's a deck builder they have a resource cost each of the cards has got a resource value on them so you can use them for that you can also cycle one card out of your market each turn which is handy you can throw it out the game if you think that you're advanced enough to know what you're doing if you don't do that and don't do buying with them, there are three different types of cards. There are actions, buildings, or units. With an action, when you play it, it lets you do something, whatever the action says. With a building, it lets you build something as soon as you buy it, and then that card goes completely out of the game. Now, there is a map of the island of Great Britain with a very snowy wasteland-looking Scotland down all the way through England and Wales. And that is split into areas. There's human population in each area, and there's one UFO lander at the top of Scotland at the beginning of the game. Via building cards, you can build up your presence in these areas across, and you can give yourself infrastructure, which will boost actions or give you more defense. Obviously, it's how the UFOs, the aliens, are going to spread down across the land in order to give you a base to work on. So there is an area aspect to this game. It's not just a card game. And the last one is unit cards. When you Buy a unit card, you place that unit immediately, again, in one of the areas, somewhere you control, where you have a presence already. And then when that unit card comes back around in your deck, you can use it to activate that particular type of unit. Why are you activating them? Because you're going to be attacking each other, obviously. When the humans 
attack the aliens. The alien units and buildings don't die, but they just accumulate general damage, and that's how you're trying to get to that total of 30 damage, which is tracked. When the aliens attack the humans, the human population cubes come off the board. The aliens have got to spread all the way down to the south of England and clear out all those cubes, and that's how they're going to win. Sean, a two-player, asymmetric, deck-building game, this is why I put it on here, because as soon as I read those things, I was like, mm, I am interested. And you know well, as soon as I read those things, I was like, hmm, I'm probably not interested. But no, how can you say that? When, like, there are deck builders that you really like. There are deck builders are I like. I don't asymmetric. like asymmetrical combat games generally. There are, we've talked about the exceptions to the rules. But... What I will say is that the visual aid of having that map there and seeing your units on the map, that does appeal to me, and that kind of brings me more into one of my problems with asymmetric card games is it just feels like I'm laying a card down on my side of the table. You're laying yours opposite to it. Oh, they do stuff. Having that visual representation makes me brings me more into the game, brings me more into the theme of the game, and I understand better what I'm trying to do as I can see it right in front of me. Does it make it real? does make it real, man. It's too real, man. <laughs> too real. <laughs> you can cut me off for <laughs> You mentioned theme. War of the Worlds clearly must be in the public domain, right? We know that. It is in the public domain. It's not a theme I love. Oh, I, I same. the DVG... Solo game last year. It's actually a really good game. I like it a lot, and it's the theme that holds me back. I just don't know, man. I missed the boat on this one. Never been fussed by it. It's always been a, uh, uh, an IP that's yeah, not fussed. Tom Cruise didn't even persuade you, no. Didn't even persuade me. For you, good price for the components you get in there. You get a full board. You get the decks of cards. You get actual miniatures for some of your stuff. The actual buildings aren't miniatures, but but the actual units are. I was quite it's quite well priced I like this fair enough absolutely yeah there are there are some decent looking miniatures the card artwork all looks good I'll throw one thing at you Ronan mm-hmm. from what I can see I think that the aliens seem way more interesting to play than the humans what makes you say that they just have cooler things they seem to have more variety to what they're doing the humans just seem to be hunkering down, defending, and, and making the occasional forays, where the aliens seem to... It's all about expanding over that board, making sure you don't leave yourself too light at the back, but all your tech is quite cool, and you're drawing off energy. Yeah, I think the aliens sound a lot more interesting. Well, we know what sides us two are going to be when we play Because <laughs> I quite like the sound of the humans. The nibbling in, the setting yourself up, trying to get behind the lines. Like, you... Aliens have got one thing they've got to do. They've got to spread and they've got to kill. The humans can be like darting around. If I put a bit of defence there, they'll have to attack this way and then I can nibble in and mm, be a bit more mobile, a bit more nimble, a bit more... Don't worry, like, you know, I can lose a couple of people there. As long as I do some damage to them, as long as I'm continually doing a war of attrition, I'll win in the end. I don't mind that at all. Are you seriously going to play the mobile nimble faction? Hey, I'm light on my feet. Don't you <laughs> see me cut some shapes? <laughs> I'll give you one mechanical thing. Go on. I'm not a huge fan of completely random markets. Like the fact there's one big deck and you're turning over five cards and there could be anything. Now, you can cycle it. Okay, I do appreciate that. I would rather, let's say there was three separate decks and you have two from here, two from here, and one from there, whatever, and you replace them and Ooh. that's 
that's for me, as in all deck builders, I just sometimes you get stuck, you know, you might get all massively, we were playing Legends the other day and just all high value cards came out. Yeah. And you're stuck there going, oh. Yeah, you'd like, you'd like a little bit more control as to what you're doing because you can't really form a strategy until you see what the cards are. Yeah, and I think that that is more thematic human-wise. You're like, well, this is what you've got. You've got to roll yeah. with it. As the aliens, I think that would be more frustrating. You're like, look, I have to do this before I can do that. Maybe. We haven't I think it. there are tough choices in the game, run. I think you do have to like throw away cards that are quite useful to have those one-off superpower moves. So I think they, they will thin your deck out. Oh, yeah. So like a lot of the actions are do one damage and keep the card or do three damage, but the card's gone out of the yeah, game. Yeah, yeah. Which I hope would lend itself to a crescendo. Yeah. Where you're like, right, now I can start destructing, you know, destroying my deck and just really hammering at it and hopefully some sense of, whoa, we're getting there. You can tell I'm excited for <laughs> I've already seen the ticks on my boxes. I wonder what I'm gonna choose. What's your thoughts? I'm gonna I'm gonna pick your brains again. I'm gonna uh, what's the asymmetrical game where it's humans versus aliens that we really like? Invaders. For me, is this gonna be better than Invaders? I don't think it's going to have the tension, the stress levels, or the the really good way that the two factions play off each other. I'm not too fussed about the IP. Love the map. If Invaders had a map, it would be like my favourite asymmetrical deck building game in history. I think I would still rather play Invaders, so it's going to be a slight trap, but I'm still definitely willing to play it with you. Okay, Invaders is not a deck builder, so you're just upsetting me. Sorry, not deck builder. Asymmetrical combat game. I'm not interested. You said I'll just upset with you. You're wrong. This is a treasure. <laughs> and we will be playing it because I'm going to get it. So we'll see you at the Grey Fox stand because I'm going to get War of the World, a strong treasure. I'll give you that much. Nicely done. Okay, so last one of this half is Chocolate Factory, designed by Matthew Dunstan and Brett J. Gilbert, coming from Alley Cat Games, playing one to four players. So we are the Chief Chocolatiers. And we are going to make our chocolate factory the best chocolate factory in the land. We previously, Ronan, featured this one as part of one of our Kickstarter discussions. And we were both sort of sniffing around it and wondering whether we were going to back it. Neither of us did. So does that tell the tale? So going back to the theme of the game, we need to supply retailers what they want and in the quantities that they want as efficiently as possible to win the game. And the game is played over six days or rounds. The main aim is to run your basic materials, cacao, along a conveyor belt to make chocolate. So we move on to the phases. So you've got the prepare and then the expand and recruit phases. So you're going to choose your factory parts and your employees. Parts are going to improve your conveyor belt. And employees are going to break the rules, give bonuses, and also give access to department stores, which are the bigger shops that we can sell to. Then we're going to move on and we're going to run our factory. And you're going to need coal to run your belt. And you're going to load your cacao beans. And you're going to push, physically push your conveyor belt tiles along. So every time they pass a certain machine that's going to do something, that machine is going to activate. So it might turn cacao into cocoa. And another one might turn cocoa into wrap sweets or luxury sweets or what have you. Each factory part can only be used once. Then you're going to move on to fulfilling orders. So we already know that each shop, what each shop acquires. So now we're going to supply them for points. Or as I said, we can supply a department store 
that has been opened up to us by the employee we hired. The difference between department stores and shops is department stores pay at the end of the game, shops pay immediately. So lots of upgrades, employees with lots of different chocolates to be made. Plan your belt to produce what you need as efficiently as possible. Points scored immediately for shops or at game end for department stores. Bonus for sets of department stores or most shops. Roland, chocolate factory, your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I'll start off. (laughs) This is a personal thing. I understand that. I don't know what other opinions exist. Just the overall look of it, Sean. Doesn't excite me in any way. The theme, the look, the components. I'm just looking at it and it's just drag. I think for a game about factories, they've done possibly as good as they could. It is a factory, it is a drab existence. It's not going to be too well, hold much. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Tell Gene Wilder that. <laughs> Right, it's not a fantasy chocolate factory. It's a real. Well, why? Why isn't it? Why can't? Why haven't we got rivers of chocolate? And, you know, it didn't have to be as workaday as it looks. No. It's just, I quite like the kind of retro feel to it because it's, it's like sort of nineteen twenties, nineteen thirties feel to it, and yeah, I quite like that aspect. But yeah, I get it. it. It doesn't look that appealing. I think it's the appeal of it possibly is going to be sliding the belt along, but I think that's going to wear thin after a while. It's just going to become something you have to do. So, and th- that bit's okay. I don't. I don't mind that. And you know, I think we talked about when we did the Kickstarter preview that, that the fact is that's actually mechanical. You're moving that thing along to the next station, which feels like what you do in a factory and you move it along and everything shifts along and it feels like a production line that mechanism i really like actually and i just wish it had been tied to something that was more exciting personally to me and overall it all feels a bit small scale and that is encapsulated in something that is just my pet hate and this is a bit of lunacy so by all means ignore it but the fact that each round is a day a day in which you're upgrading loads of machinery and getting in orders and, and building this factory. So in one week, you built this factory up from three bits of machinery to like eight and they're upgrading everything. And that's just one more thing of, I'm not feeling this. I don't like the look. I don't like the theme. I don't, you know, rounds as days. It's just a pet hate, but I hate that. And it all feels very small and, and I, I like the drafting element. I like that. Oh, here you go. I'll throw you that stuff. <laughs> yeah, the draft, so you get to choose uh, three upgrades or two upgrades, three staff or two staff. That's in a three a two-player game, obviously different denominations in, in uh, different player counts. But yeah, effectively you're choosing your upgrades and then your staff or your staff and then your upgrades and you're leaving things open for other people. But yeah, I, I think the game hinges, Ronan, on how different those upgrades are and the different things that you can do. Because if they're all very similar or there's multiple copies of each, it could be quite tedious for everyone to end up with very similar uh, machines and very similar conveyor belts as the game goes on. Um, Am I going to care what your factory looks like? Is there anything in the game that makes me... So when when you draft, you should care what everyone else is doing. It just feels to me it's a solo puzzle 
That's what I need. That's what I need. Those are now mine. I'm going to run my factory. Or you all don't even have to look at what I'm doing. I'm just going to run my little factory, paying coal, moving things along. Is it the next round yet? <laughs> Should I, I'll, just, I'll just say, I need convincing. It's not a big trap. I think it could be fun for a couple of plays. I'm not sure that it's going to change much you know, between those plays and therefore it might be a couple and done. And then just those things, if I don't like the look and theme, it's not fast at all. I don't want to run a chocolate factory. So it's a trap for me. So for me, I actually don't hate the art, but how how nice can a factory actually be? I think it could become repetitive. Ask Gene Wilder. <laughs> Once, <laughs> not Johnny Depp, no. No, <laughs> <Where are you laughs> be like that. Let's not be comparing those two gentlemen. Thank you very much. So I think it actually could become quite repetitive once an engine is in place. Are you just going to rinse and repeat everything? As I said before, it's going to hinge on that the variety of upgrades. There needs to be enough for you to feel that you're creating your own machine. Love the conveyor mechanism. Quite like what Ali Cat have been doing of recent days, and so I'm going to say it's a tentative treasure. But Ronan, yes. I'm going to find out tomorrow, hopefully, because a certain little cherub called Matthew Jude has a review copy that he's eager to play, and he might be bringing it around tomorrow. I'll check you out. So I'll be able to. I'll be able to tell I can't you. Can't wait for the next episode where you tell me I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> now we've had that episode this year. <laughs> Dumbass. Right. That's six down, six to go, Sean. And then we're going to have a little bit of a break. You're going to hear some lovely interlude music or lift music. And then we shall be back with our dulcet tones. So the next one up is Last Bastion, a one to four player game taking 60 minutes designed by Antoine Bowser Seven Wonders Takanoko Hanabi and many big huge hits and from and, Repos games and ghost stories well you just come straight in brother you're not going to give me 10 seconds no. why was this game made just going to give my brother 10 seconds to get there no? <laughs> that's on my first line I do Repos their games first line I mention those two words just why that's all I've okay. got why just one cash and guns and concept are from Repos Productions Sure. Last Bastion is the easiest one for me to summarise because it's ghost stories. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know it. I didn't realise it was ghost stories when I put it on the list. I saw it was from Repos. I saw it was a co-op. I saw bare, bare sort of bones. I went, oh, great. That looks interesting. Let's put it on a treasure hunt and I can learn more. I don't have to learn more because I've played it loads and we reviewed it a couple of episodes ago. <laughs> It's a co-op. Four characters, in this case, defend a bastion, possibly the last bastion, rather than a village. And these are defending against the hordes of the Bayfall Queen, rather than Japanese ghosty demony things. Yeah. I don't really need to go over the rules of ghost stories, do I? So, can we just go straight into our thoughts? Well, yeah, okay. Right, so... I don't love the re-theme. Ghost stories looks beautiful. It doesn't look like a game from whenever it was, eight, seven, eight, nine years ago. Whenever it was, it, 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 <laughs> it, holds, it holds up. It, uh, 2000, that's the one. It holds up today, regardless. It looks beautiful. I'm going to say it, Ronan. It has some vibrant colours going on. I love the artwork. Great. Also, Great theatre in the game. Real theatre in it. There is theatre. Also, 
The game has masses of replayability, not just because it's hard, because you're learning, and we've talked about this all the time. You're continually learning. Massive. One of the most replayable games in history. Why have they made another copy? You seem to be quite offended. I am offended. I just smacks of, well, what can we do to make money? I go stories. It's quite a good game. Presumably, he thought, I could do a couple of things different here. And literally, he's done a couple of things different. (laughs) (laughs) The character powers, rather than being two-sided, you can have any mix of them, which is, you know, slightly better. There's eight characters now. Yeah, there was eight in the old one, but oh, was there was two sides to red, oh, two sides okay. to red, two sides yeah, to blue. Yeah, okay. So you couldn't be both red powers. Not that right, you'd want to be, because red was the rubbish one. Yeah. But you know, it gives you that slight flexibility. I'm gonna presume and hope that they've changed some of the invader powers a little bit. Well, you don't, wouldn't you? <laughs> That's it. I just hope so. I don't love the retheme. There's no need to put this in a generic fantasy setting. That's like the worst retheme you can do. There's billions of them. The artwork. I think it's cool, I think it's stylish, I think it's attractive, but the fact that it's artwork that's gone into a generic fantasy setting kind of makes me go like, mm, I, I, I actually prefer the old artwork. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like this, as I do with the Tigerish and Euphrates redoing, is that I much prefer the original, I, I like the sort of authenticity of the original, as opposed to the, the plastic models and all this business. Oh, well, there's plastic models in the original. Or should I start being a, stop being a smart ass for you now? Yeah, no, no, but they, they've added more plastic models and more things, and they've changed the little Buddhas, which were awesome, to, to something like a cart full of bombs or something. No, yeah, I could really I could really feel those Buddhas. I could really relate. Okay, <laughs> last bastion. It is Ghost Stories, again, with very minor changes, which means it's a... Trap. How is it a trap when it's Ghost Stories? It's a trap, because Ghost Stories is there. Okay, what if you didn't own Ghost Stories? Okay, everything you're going to praise about this game, you're praising Ghost Stories. So, right, but Ghost Stories isn't out, and this one is, and it's a really good game. Yeah, okay, I see where you're going. I see where you're going. A treasure in that it's Ghost Stories, a trap in that it's Ghost Stories revamped and unnecessarily so. Gosh, I really didn't expect that. I thought that would be the easiest treasure ever. We could just move on. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, it's a remake of a fantastic game. What's weird to me is that it's not obvious that it's a remake of Ghost Stories. So is it possible someone could buy this and be like, hold on, <laughs> hold on, what? I, I would imagine so. I think they need to make it more obvious that this is a remake of Ghost Stories for people. Yeah. And I'm puzzled why they've done it, but fine, it exists, right. it's a great game. I'd probably be more it. angry than that, but then I really should have. No, okay. It's late, I'm tired. <laughs> Get you've, been, you've been an angry man tonight. If, I am. There's a few hundred miles between us. If you don't have ghost stories, then absolutely treasure all the way. Great. Now for this next one, this really is we could go straight to our opinions as well. <laughs> oh well, Orleans stories. Orleans stories, yep. Okay, so Orleans stories. This game is from DLP, from Rainer Stockhausen, as Orleans was. And it takes Orléans and adds story and changing scenario into the fold. So you've still got the basic bag building mechanism still here. Uh, so if you know Orléans, you're drawing workers out of a bag and you're placing them on your own player board to drive whatever you're doing. So 
we've talked about Oli on many, many times. So in stories, you don't move one meeple around the map, building warehouses. Instead, on this one, you're going to expand by placing additional settlers onto adjacent lands. You can conquer other people's lands with knights, and you can defend yours with fortresses. So the slight change there. So generating goods from every areas you control is now an action. It's a terrain action. And you can also turn the areas that you control into villages, which makes them harder to take over, but you lose your resources. You still have actions that allow you to get more workers and get unique buildings, and those technology tiles are still there uh, that make things cost less. But we also have a market to buy and sell goods and a portal that's going to allow access to a communal tiles called the beneficial deeds actions and these are powerful ways to break the rules lastly players are going to have a stack of base place tiles where they can use depending on the scenario during a game you advance through eras which each one changing what is available to you to go from one era to the next you're going to need to achieve a requirement and then you're going to read out narration cards, i.e. the stories. To win, you will have to have fulfilled the preset tasks. And the tasks are going to be to build certain buildings, gather citizens, accumulate goods and or money. And there's a definite race element to the game. You don't have to reach the final era, which is the eighth era. But normally you have to get to the seventh era because that's going to give you the opportunity to build whatever you need to to finish your player pad so a lot of orleans in there ronan a little bit of a story element coming in and i'm going to throw one thing at you straight away player elimination what a great choice what a brilliant choice (laughs) from a from a euro that people are already saying can go three or four hours player elimination are you impressed with that? Are you? <laughs> I pre-ordered it. I'm devastated. <laughs> Don't get eliminated. Play better. Sure, that's the answer to everything. Play better. Play better. You buffoon. Right. Uh, <laughs> look, this is real simple because we're here to decide whether this is a treasure or a trap. Do you like Orleon? Yes. Have you played it a lot? Yes. Have you played the bejesus out of the two or three expansions that are available already? No. Then it's not necessary, but you're going to like it. So sure, it's a treasure for you. It it weighs two kilos. It costs as much as a full game. No one needs to buy it unless they love Orleon and want to have slightly different things to do within that system. It's basically a variant game. Do you love Orleon enough to spend full whack for a variant game of it? That's it. That's all you need to know. If you say yes, then it's a treasure. If you don't, it's a trap. I, I think quite interesting is the area control aspect, is, uh, which is a very simple change, but a very definite change and a fundamental change. In Orleans, you, you go around, only one person can build a warehouse in each location, and it was part of the thing is that you try to block each other off and get to things before. Now you can you can attack each other and you can actually go and take areas back from people. So I think that's a massive change and it makes it a much more aggressive game. That is fantastic. But you currently are now talking to the percentage, it's probably about 2% of the 500 people in the world who care. <laughs> 
because it's such a niche product. It's an amazing product if you're that into it. But, you know, I don't know enough. I've played it a handful of times. I don't know enough to even be able to judge these. I looked at it. I looked at the rule book. There's different things you can build and there's things you keep on track of. I don't appreciate the game enough in order to be able to say, oh, that change will change that, and that change will change this. And I've played it a handful of times, and I really like it, and I rate it highly, and this still isn't for me. And really, the only problem I have with it is, it's on the back of expensive expansion after expensive expansion, and they're bleeding it dry, and I don't think they're going to sell that many of these. So I'm wondering why they've bothered to put a full, massive box together for it. Could this these same changes have been implemented with a smaller expansion that wasn't full whack? Even if there's only one of them, it's all on stories volume one, here's a small thing that doesn't cost as much. Mm. Because they've just gone full massive production on Yeah, you're saying it's interesting changes, the area control and they're having to build different structures and stuff, but it's not enough for me to be a full whack product. Yeah, yeah, ain't taking up two kilos of my airline allowance. Put it that way. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. In that, this could have been an expansion, definitely. I I think the crowbar in the story side of it, in you have to read out narrative, and I think that's that's all a a bit of a farce. It will help you make decisions, Sean, if you read that. There's there's definite aspects to this that I, I do like, and there's things that are a bit worrying to me. So, Ronan, you're saying it's a Trap for you? For me, trap. For the six of you who care out there, definite treasure. Go and fill your boots. You're going to love it. I don't know how you're going to find enough people to play it with, but go for it. I've pre-ordered it, and I'm not one of those six. Eh? I pre-ordered it because I'm a massive Orleon fan. When I dug deeper into it after I pre-ordered it, I... Dumbass. Dumbass. (laughs) One whole scenario is all about player elimination. It's... No, no, not in a three or four hour game. No, but I'm out. So yeah, if I hadn't have pre-ordered it, I wouldn't be buying it. Put it that way. Now knowing what I know now, I can't believe how much I'm going to enjoy this visit to DLP Games. <laughs> Just <laughs> poking you and having a little. And they made it so easy for me to buy it as well. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to order it three times and pay once and do various emails and that was bank transfer in the end. Thank God I was included in that email chain. I just, that improved my life no end. <laughs> right. Okay, moving Shall we on. move on? Actual new games now, and four of them to finish off with. And the first one is Jiguam. Two to four player, 90 minute game from Eros Lin, who has designed such games as Roundhouse, Burano and Herbalism. And from Emperor S4, publisher of Hanamakoji, Realm of Sand, Matcha and all of the above. Each of the players is a machinist in ancient China, making mechanical beasts. In order to make these beasts, on your turn you're going to draft gears of various values. When you get those gears in, you're going to place them on a 3 by 3 grid. You're also going to be claiming beast blueprints, and the blueprints will be of a certain colour. They'll have a certain value, and they'll have a certain reward when you build it, and you'll put those into your workshop. On your 3x3 grid, when you have a line, it can be horizontal or diagonal or vertical, 
of three gears that add up to the value of one of your blueprints, then you can make that blueprint. When you do that, of the three gears that you've used, two must be discarded, one stays on your grid. And then you flip the beast over. That beast is gonna move you up on one of the five pagodas. The pagodas are linked to the five different colors of the beast. And each of those beasts, as I said, is gonna give you a different reward, be it energy or money or more blueprints or movement or another gear or a way to help you move along because you can use energy and money to help you do various little things. Just tweak a little the way that you're making these beasts we're gonna do this over two whole rounds and the round is when all the gears have been taken in the game and you're going to score at the end of each round you're going to score for how far you've advanced on pagodas but what's interesting is that there are multipliers and two of the multipliers will kick in at the end of the first round and three will kick in at the end of the second round so where you are is going to have a different value depending upon how deep you are into the game and you're going to be adding your rewards together and your points for being up on those pagodas for building these beasts and drafting these gears and doing it for 90 minutes. And the best machinist will be the winner of Chiguan. Sean, this idea of taking something simple from the centre of the table and putting it onto your own little area, your own grid, in order to create a pattern, in order to then do something, to me, was very reminiscent of sort of Sorcerer and Stones, but mostly Realm of Sand which we previewed last time round for Essen, when you were doing it to build up those blueprints that also got built on your grid. And it feels like a sort of a reworking of a similar game, albeit by a different designer. I'm struggling to see where the game is, Roman. I, I just look at it and so you, you, you're drafting, so you're taking what you need, you're placing it onto your grid in the places that you need to build whatever you need to build. It's all very simple choices. I don't see where to and fro or the cleverness is in the game itself. I just don't. I, I don't see it. Yeah, that sums it up for both. <laughs> okay, I'm expecting you to come back at me about that. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. When we looked at Realm of Sam last time, I think we both trapped it, and we both said it seems like a really simple mechanism with a lot of guff around it, lots of other things going on with you know, five pagodas and rewards and energy and, and money, which don't really seem to do too much. And the fact that you leave one gear behind, like you can really plan ahead, but you can't really plan ahead that far. And you've got quite a lot of flexibility because you can build these lines in any area. And a lot of, you know, whenever we talk about a Euro, and I think I'm going to talk about it again, it's, it's where the restriction is. I am going to talk about it again in your last game. It's, is there a restriction? Am I doing this under pressure? And am I, am I having to prioritise? And this feels exactly the same as Realm of Sand, that I'm not doing it under pressure. I don't really have to prioritise, and I've got quite a lot of choice. And in the end, I'm just we're all going to be building up a similar number of beasts over the game, and there's going to be small differences between what we're doing, and we're all doing the same thing constantly for 90 minutes. If this was a 45-minute game, I'd actually be like, oh, okay, that's quite interesting. Quick draft, quick build, who can race up the pagoda? 90 minutes? Oh, I didn't even I know 90 minutes. Thing. I thought yeah. I th I thought it was a quick game. They really, to me, seem to have tried to hung a full weight game off a very simple skeleton again, and I'm not convinced. I'm not sure we've got too much more to say about Jiguan. Have you any more points? Yeah, I mean, I, li I like the look of the game. I don't think it's for everyone. I like the theme. It's quite cool. Ancient mechanical piece. Yeah, the theme's quite cool. I think the iconography might get a little bit getting used to. The rule book's very messy, which doesn't help with that sort of feeling about the iconography and stuff. Got that here, hard to decipher the rules. Not just the layout, but actually it has 
pictures and things behind the words. It's some, some of the words are actually yeah. hard, to, hard to read. So Absolutely. They've tried to put in rules on like inserts here and there in boxes, yeah. and then they've inserted artwork here yeah. and there, and you're like, oh, which is what? What's going on? Yeah, yeah. it's, it's just – it's a nice theme. It's a nice idea, but as you said, there's no bones to it. There's no bones to hang though that meat onto. So whatever meat is in the game, it's it's, it's going to go rotten, really. Rotten, big word. Go on. <laughs> so yeah, it's a trap for me. I'm just not feeling any excitement for this. I might try it if somebody was desperate for me to play it, but I've got no burning desire. Yeah, Jiguan for me. Trap seems nice. Not enough for me to prioritize it over lots and lots of games at this time of year. Would like to play it actually. Would like to give it a go and be happy to be proven wrong. But I will not be purchasing it. And that's Jiguan, Sean. Oh, you're on to your favourite London football team. <laughs> we shouldn't talk about football. We should really shouldn't should talk we? about football at the moment. Not, not been a good week. Good week for you, not for me. Can you teach Lloris how to fall backwards, please? Like jiu-jitsu oh, one do That was Ow. painful. So I'm a Tottenham Hotspur fan. Our goalkeeper fell into his own goal after letting the ball in into the net and bent his arm the wrong way. Ow. Dislocated his elbow. Yeah, not good. Not good. So, <laughs> apologies in advance. This is Crystal Palace, <laughs> <laughs> which is designed by Carsten Lauber from Fuenland Spiel, playing two to five players. This is the other big heavy beast that I'm going to try and decipher probably quite poorly. So, it's 1851. It's the first welfare in London, and we are a nation trying to create some buzz with our inventions in order to win the support of the famous and the powerful people attending. So on the table in front of you, you've got a, a whole slew of London locations that offer various different things, including patents and prototypes, characters to bring into your onto your player boards, shares, publisher and research tiles, and, and more. They're all worker placement locations, I should add. There is an admin board, which gives victory points. Uh, there's an advertising track or a buzz track. And also your income track is on this board. Lastly, there is a black market track, which is going to allow you to get additional income. The currency in the game is money, but also gears and energy. And in front of yourself, you're going to have an asymmetric player board. The game is essentially a worker placement game, but with dice as your workers. And it's going to happen over five rounds, each consisting of seven phases. So your first phase, you're going to select the die results. That's, that's right, you select them. You're going to start with four dice workers. And the, the catch is, is you're going to have to pay for each pip that you add. So it's one pound per pip. Then you're going to set your dice up and hide them. The first player is the person with the most pips on show. Then you're going to place those workers. And the pips on show represent the minimum value of dice you need when you're placing in a certain area. If you're the first to place or place in a ad, the administrative put spot, it's going to allow you to move up on a score track on your board or move up on the black market. If you are last to place, you will probably have to pay £2 for the pleasure to do so. Then you get to activate the workers and you're going to go through, they're going to go through each building one by one. But not the person who plays first, it's the highest pip value first. You're going to get things like research tiles. And research tiles are going to give you either an immediate reward 
or you're going to get something every round. Shares, you're going to get a one-time bonus to your income. On the Westminster Tower, you're going to move along another track, and each track is going to give you a separate reward. There are characters that are going to come into your hand, and they're going to cost you to acquire them, but they're going to give you points. <laughs> One of the main things you can get is patents or patents. I say patents. Tomato, tomato. I can't work out whether I say patents or patents. <laughs> we just had a discussion whether what it was, and I've confused Ronan. <laughs> <laughs> so patents are cards that they're basically bl- blueprints and you're going to flip them over to make your prototypes of something they're going to obviously give you more points you're going to get newspapers newspapers are going to run up a track on your own player board and they're going to allow you to get resources in and more points in you can get extra dice you can go up to six dice you can get straight up points by losing dice there's so much going on here then you're going to move into phase four, which is you're going to pay your upkeep for the characters. Phase five is you get to turn your patents into prototypes. Phase six is your income. And then phase seven, you reset it all again. Also, just to mention, there are loans in the game. You're probably going to use them. They are quite necessary and quite restrictive. They're going to cost you a lot of points. Even if you do pay them off, they're going to cost you five points. So that is the best I can do with Crystal Palace, right? Well done. Because <laughs> that could have been 40 minutes. <laughs> I can't. It could, have been, it could have been an hour and 40 minutes, and I still wouldn't have made sense of it. <laughs> this is definitely, definitely heavier than Throne of Allegoria. <laughs> this is way heavier, with way more going on. And that comes with its own benefits and... And Malices, and especially going into Essen, I can see a lot of people get into this game and looking through it and going, I can't work out what's going on. The good news is, of course, that the, the publisher has got such a good reputation and has done this before with heavier games and with this one, in my opinion, has done a fantastic rule book that is the type of heavy game that I think could be a huge hit at this Essen. I think it's gearing up that way. I think the buzz out of Gen Con, Gen Con wasn't really the forum for it, but the the Euro fans that did go to Gen Con, a lot of them sort of rounded on this one and were having a good sniff at it and on the tables and there was a lot of buzz that came out. And one of the tracks running on this is the buzz track and it has a lot of tracks. About <laughs> nine <laughs> at last counting. <laughs> has got a lot. Of, but that buzz track, I mean, every single thing in here, this is why it's going to be really hard to learn and teach and get into, but every single thing, it's not just a track that you're going up and at the end that's going to score your multiplier of points. For example, the buzz track. As you go across, there's, there's those spaces on there, and as you go past them, you can choose to leave a buzz marker behind, yeah. which will give you a bonus every single round. Now, the lower down ones are not obviously not as good as the higher up ones, but you've only got two buzz markers, and there's about six spaces on there. Ooh. So if you think, I'm going to really get my buzz up and go up there and get those markers down, or do you stall halfway and you haven't used one or two of your markers, and now you're not getting any income, and those are the sort of things that will grow from learning. And every track works different, like the newspaper... They're kind of that default thing that you need in a tight game sometimes. Throw away one newspaper to get the one coin you need so you don't have to take a loan, you don't get into that hole, and it allows you to continue doing your things. But if you cannot do that, 
If you can just avoid that little trap and get to four, throw it away, get another die, boom, you know, you've got five to use, or you get your sixth one, and that's how you can improve the number of actions you can do. And every track works differently, Sean, which is what is interesting to me, not just an endless amount of tracks that we're just slowly trudging upwards. Yeah, no, oh, absolutely. And there's, there's a, a lot of ways to score points. But just going back to the loans, right, then, there's a really weird sort of mechanism going on. So on your personal player boards, there are loads of areas where you can place various tiles over. They're minus two if you don't place tiles over them. But obviously, you can gain points by placing tiles over them. You place your loan over that tile. So even if you pay back your loan, you get minus five points. But you're covering up minus two points. So effectively, a loan is minus three points. So it's just really weird that they how they've done that. Were you having a bit of a moment reading this rule book, getting caught up in it? <laughs> minus five, but five minus... But that's only minus three. Good God, how could this... But also alone then limits the number of those you can have, which is another interesting, like everything kind of just tinkles onto each yeah, other in an yeah. interesting and way. The points, so you, you saw points for moving up the bus track, for reaching locations on the bus track, for flipping your patents over, for getting characters, for having research tiles on your player board to cover the minus two spaces. Which You've got to stop listing mechanics, man. My head's spinning already. <laughs> These people are definitely not following then, But then you on top of that, of you, you get points for being the highest on the bus track, the highest in the black market track. We haven't even talked about the black market track. That's another well, really that, That's well confusing, man. Oh, no, no, it's not actually. When if flipping is... <laughs> I wish you grok it. So you go into the you go in at the lowest available space. Yeah, okay. So as as it builds up, the, the higher you go in at, if it ever fills up, then everyone comes up apart from the person who placed last. And you can you can take... Hold on, hold on. The, uh, the bobbies turn up. Let's, let's use the proper <laughs> in-game the terminology. The bobbies turn up. You oh, stay oh, there. Oh, okay, and at any time, you can remove your character to get a, a resource or a, or a bonus. But then they all slide down automatically at the end of a round, but then other things can knock them down. But if they get knocked down, you don't get a bonus. But if they slide down or something, you choose to slide it down, you do get a bonus. Yeah. But when the game automatically kicks you down, you don't get a bonus. No, that's right. There's a lot going on there. I don't know how I remember <laughs> that's it, a game that. in itself. <laughs> okay, right. Something I don't want to talk about is... Go on. We're talking about tracks and we're talking about all the various things that are around. The actual central mechanism, there's two really interesting things about that die placement. Firstly, setting your own value. Yeah. That is always a little bit of like, I hated that character in Marco Polo where you set your own value because generally higher was better in there. I mean, not always, it costs you money, but generally higher was better. In this, of course, you have to pay the money for the total value of your dice. That is interesting enough to me, seemingly of a restriction that you're not going to go all high all the time. So, yeah, I think that is really interesting and it does negate that, oh, well, why wouldn't I set everything to six? Because you can't afford to set everything to six. You can't you can't afford £24 every turn. So you've got to be very canny about, right, okay, so I can afford maybe... Twelve pounds this turn. What, <laughs> Three pounds. Yeah. What, what do I push up? What do I really want? So do I go? Do I gamble and go for that six to make sure I get something, or do I think actually nobody's really going to go for the thing I really want? So maybe I can have a few more fours in there. I don't know. So let let me come in there then. Specifically on that point, there are more places to place dice in each area than there are action spaces in each area. So just because you've put a die in there and secure one of the spaces 
doesn't mean you're going to get to do the action because <laughs> you've done it with a two and then three fours come in. Those fours will take the action spaces and you're too yep. useless. You <laughs> Absolutely. And oh, that's going to hurt. That is going to burn. <laughs> the, game, the game sort of slaps you around a bit because if you don't get to do your action through everyone else kind of usurps you, you get a pound, but you've probably paid two pounds to go in there. <laughs> Here's a quid, mate. Now go on. Go, go on. off. Here's a pound back, you mug. Go on, do one. <laughs> that what that all ties together to me is that it's going to be a game that is going to be hard when you're first, you're not going to know what to set those dice to. You're going to get outbid. You're going to get overplaced. You're going to be like, oh no, I can see myself coming out of here with negative points <laughs> again. Rewarding that repeated play, rewarding real depth. Of, of sort of seeing what the other players... If someone is massing up that bu- that buzz track, they're going to put sixes in there. Fine, I know they're going to put sixes in there. Then I need to concentrate somewhere else or whatever it might be. Or challenge them. I don't let them get... I don't know. But it seems like a real game that you're going to be able to learn as you go along. Yeah, and you can kind of... You can build up a real nice little engine within the game itself. So when round four kicks around, you might have a load of tokens on your board that say round four, you get one of these, one of these, one of these. So you can really sort of maximise... Sort of what you get in certain rounds, or do you spread out and have one for each round? So yeah, it's really interesting. The characters change it up again, give you little little unique powers that you can activate, and lots going on. I think we're going to be rubbish to start with, Ronan, but I'm looking forward to learning. Yes. Now, last thing for me, Sean, is that they've done well to scream Victorian London theme at us from the bobbies. <laughs> to megaphones, to the characters, to the locations, to the gears and the energy. It all feels like, you know, they're, they're trying to get into this Victorian, real energetic city with the Industrial Revolution going on and, you know, the Empire and all that. Sort of a real place to be at the time in the 19th century. And they've tried so, so hard to set this in an actual place with these little touches. They have, but nah. <laughs> I didn't. I, didn't oh, get, I thought you'd be well into. No, it, I didn't get stuff. a feeling like I was in London in in eighteen fifty one. I just. <laughs> I don't know what would you want tuberculosis. <laughs> it's a real <laughs> they, pace. They've done out. their best. So someone's got a waft in thick smoke while we're playing. <laughs> <laughs> Around you, the air is always thick. Right, it's quite clear from my comments. This is a one hundred percent treasure. I'm super excited about Crystal Palace. Definite, definite treasure for me. Yeah, I'd heard buzz about it from Gen Con, as I said earlier. I'm not disappointed. I was a little bit daunted in trying to get the, get it over to you, and I probably haven't done a very good job, but. Definitely check it out if you're going to Essen and beyond. I think it's a definite treasure. That is Crystal Palace. Well, what excitement for that one, Sean. Let's move on to one with just as much information out about it. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Go on. I'm going to give you a few minutes to do this one, to do it justice. Yeah, all right. Quite quite a lot here. Hold, Hold on to your hats, people. It's so you've been eaten. A zero to two player thirty minute game yeah, yeah. from Scott Arms. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about this. Yeah, good. Okay, Scott Arms. All the tiny epic games, Heroes of Land, Air and Sea, and from Ludicrations, who've done Crisis and Mister Cabbagehead's Garden and Redacted and many others. I'll tell you, Sean, this is a card game, right? Yep, yep. In which a miner enters the digestive tract of a beast and tries to mine for crystals. 
and the beast concurrently is trying to digest the miner using the uh, bacteria in its guts. Brilliant. That is, I like the theme, Ronan. I can't wait to hear the mechanisms. I don't know. <laughs> Every <we> year. <laughs> Every year. Three weeks from Essen. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what did amuse me, Ronan. Go on. You can be crapped out. Literally, <laughs> be crapped out in this game. Yeah. And if you're, Story of my life. If you're, if you're pooed out by the beast... It goes down to who's got the most points thus far. <laughs> yeah, that's the end of the game. You're I out. love the thing. You can't I mean, like, anymore. You've got to dig as hard as you can once you're inside the beast because if you don't get enough crystal, company probably won't. It won't be worth their while pulling you out again. They'll just leave you to die. <laughs> <laughs> or you could get lucky and be pooed out. <laughs> Come on, this is enough for me to feature the name, the theme, the artwork, Quanchai Moria. Obviously, massively hot. I love when he does sci-fi games. Apps, the box lid is the only thing we've seen off the artwork. We don't know what the cars look like, but that looks great. Great theme, interesting name, great artwork. It's soloable, so that's yeah. going to talk to a certain sector of the market. I think Scott Arms is a bit hit and miss, but I think I think he's more hit for me than you. I quite like Scott Arms' work. Yeah. He did, he did uh, Best Treehouse Ever, which you liked. <laughs> oh, yeah, I did like that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so it's got, you know, this game has got, just from these scant details, enough about it that people are talking about it and people are interested. But nothing else. No rules, no overview, no designer diary, nothing. No pictures of cards, nothing. Yeah. The fact that it's, because it caught my attention too and it, it went on my list when I, when I first saw it, I thought, well, I definitely want to learn more about that. The fact that it's caught my attention, it's caught your attention, it's going to catch a lot of eyes. It could have been one of the sort of pre-hits of Essen where lots of people are, I really want to try that out. That sounds so funny. But they've kind of ruined it by no, no rule book. Yeah. So, treasure or trap on what you know? <laughs> on what I know, treasure. But I'd have to say trap on the fact that if they if they can't get the rule book out now, oh, no. it might be a From problem. From what I know, treasure, but I gotta say, trap. What is it, treasure or trap? For, okay, so from what I know about the game itself, I really like the thought of it, but the fact that they haven't got the rule book out smacks to me that there's a problem, and they're having problems finalizing things, or maybe something doesn't work. So therefore, I've got to say, trap. It's definitely a trap. It screams trap. It's got all these things about it that are appealing, that are pulling you in, and then no detail whatsoever, which is why I'm definitely going to buy it. (laughs) But it's a trap, but I'm definitely buying it. (laughs) So it's definitely trapped you then. Yeah, well, well, I'm an idiot. Clearly I was the target. I am glad you're going to buy it because it saves me doing so. (laughs) (laughs) So last game of the episode, Ronan, was supposed to be my one out of left field that I like to pull out, but then Rado went and did it. So it's quite it's quite well known now. It's Yukon Airways from Alder Duck and Ludanova playing one to four players. And it's themed around, it's 1979 and there are travellers waiting on a pier to experience the excitement of the Yukon. Players are sea plane pilots and they're going to be taking those travellers to their destinations. So the main components on the table are you have a plain dashboard as your player board, and you have a map of locations and a rake of dice, and the dice are your passengers. 
So the game is going to consist of six rounds or days. You rest on a Monday, apparently. And the first one up is your boarding face. The dice are going to be rolled and placed on the, the six departure gates, depending on the numbers rolled. The players then place their marker on a gate, and each of the gates give a special power to you. And you can also move the dice around. Why are you going to do that? Because you can then take the dice of a single colour, and you can put up to four of them on your plane. Then you're going to adjust the fuel, because less passengers equals more fuel. You move into the flight phase, and the basic side of it is to use tickets to send passengers to locations, but tickets have multiple uses. If you don't have a destination, you, you can play three tickets face down to work as that destination. You can play additional tickets which match, matching symbols to get a bonus, more of that later. When you deliver dice, you deduct fuel and the destinations will have a random cube and it's much better to deliver a matching colour dice as the cube, as the same colour as the cube. For doing this, you can have an improvement to your plane. Lastly, players are going to check to see if they've completed a randomly placed objective that was placed at the beginning of the game. You move on to the income phase, and you're going to get money for the highest value destination you have visited. You get money for passengers you have transported, and money for objectives that you have met. Move into the maintenance phase, where you're going to roll the dice again and discard your used tickets and draw new tickets. Now, I mentioned bonuses. Bonuses is all about getting money or fuel or a plane upgrade. And the plane upgrades are things like your tickets are going to hold more passengers for each one. You get more movement of the passengers at the gates, more money when you get bonuses. You can reduce the cards needed for those bonuses. You can board more than one colour onto your onto your plane and it's just two cards for a destination or you get end of game money. The winner of the game is the person who's good, who has generated the most money by the by the sixth day. Ronan, Yukon Airways. Yes, Sean. I was just I had a little look into Yukon by the way. <laughs> for all it's worth. There's a village there called Mayo Village. Oh is there? Better yes. play of them. And it's the home of oh, one of the First Nations. Oh, take me back to Castlebar to the county <laughs> of Mayo. <laughs> oh, the green and red of Mayo. Right, anyway. I never understood um, the next line of that. It's soft and craggy hills. How, how are they soft and craggy? <laughs> soft and craggy boglands. Boglands, mate. <laughs> it's tall, majestic hills. What's wrong with oh, you? Oh, sorry. Honestly. And, and this is my second point was that it's home to a First Nation tribe whose name translates to Big River People. Oh, we're there. So if that's not where you're from, I don't know. <laughs> Are you anyway. calling me here, bro? Again. <laughs> Let's move on. You do kill more people than alligators in Africa every year, so there is that about you. This is true. This is true. Right. It looks really nice. It it's it's striking. It's bold. It's vibrant. Go on, I'm cutting you off. <laughs> and... On a personal note, having been not very far north of Canada, but outside Toronto, up a little bit, where people do get around by seaplane, it's a theme that just grabbed me and I was like, oh, this is, it reminds me of being over there and the people whizzing up and down. And of course, Ronan, it's a real labour of love. Al Leduc talks about his history with Yukon Airways and he obviously knows the history behind it. So it's something that he's passionate about. Indeed. Doesn't mean it's going to make it a good game. Doesn't. Okay. No. Looking at the game itself, mm-hmm. it's quite 
simple in that if you just did it and it was like, grab the dice, go out, do the thing, come back, grab the dice, go out, do the thing, come back. What the game has to come from is the restrictions. And the restrictions that from the outside that I could see it is that you're going to get loads of points for visiting all the different areas, but actually planning that out and plan to do it successfully and go into places that will give you the ability to make your bonuses is not going to be as easy as it first looks because the map looks quite easy and quite basic and you just, well, I'm going there, taking a couple of dice and I'm going somewhere on the map. You can play it like that. You're going to lose against someone who has half a clue what they're doing. Yeah, I think every stage of the game has little choices, but they add up to be quite telling. So if you've if you've not really paid attention to two or three parts of the of the game, even if you've done sort of well in the other parts, it's, it's, you're not going to win the game because you've got to plan right from the beginning when you're moving those passengers around the the gates to get the right passengers into your plane, then work out how much fuel you need as opposed to how many passengers you're going to deliver, then upgrading your plane, getting those bonuses. It's all feeds well, that, in. The upgrade is, is key, right? Absolutely. Because they all seem overpowered. Yeah. So I read every single one of them and went, that's really cool. <laughs> that's, cool. that's really cool. Having to play two cards to get a bonus, that is really cool. But I'll take two different colours of dice. Wow, that's really cool. <laughs> yeah. But they're all overpowered. Because you're only overplaying over six days... I hope, and it, I can't tell without it, but I hope that that is tight enough that you're going to have to uh, prioritise which of those upgrades to take, which suits you. The fact I think that it's going to be quite fluid, you have to watch, see what's available, where cubes are, and which dice are where, and, and adjust to that on the fly. This is what I'm hoping will roll together to make the decisions a little bit tight, so it's not too much of a loosey, nicey game with actually not much going on. You know, also is cool, Roland. Go on. The fact that the upgrades are all little switches on your dashboard. That is, in fact, cool. And you've got your own little dials yeah, for your fuel yeah. and stuff like that. You're like, oh, I don't <laughs> oh, this cool. That's <laughs> gonna be, that makes me happy. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's just like even the gates have a, each gate has a special power. So you're immediately from the off reacting to whatever that has been rolled. You might want to go to a gate, but nothing's been rolled there. So you've got to adapt on the hoof all the time. Linking directly into that is, of course, that turn order is going to be based on whoever goes to the lowest number gate goes first in turn order yeah yeah that so what you're saying that little thing of hold on five looks nice for me but it's going to put me really far down in in getting out and getting the cubes and stuff if i take two i might have to do some dice rounds it's going to cost me money money's yeah. points but then i get to go first small things but hopefully small things that add up and start to snowball over the course of it so you've just said there so you're looking at turn order, you're looking at the power the departure gate gives you, you're looking at manipulating the dice to get the right ones into your plane, you're looking at the number of dice to make sure that you've got enough fuel. So that's four things, little things, that just in the first phase, before you even start flying, it does build up, and I think by the end of it, you're going to be scratching your head. I'll be scratching my head at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The question about Yukon Airways is, do these things on quite a small map, in quite you're just picking up and going and picking up cubes. It's not a pick up and deliver, but it sort of is a little bit. Is it enough to sustain, as we said about games previously, a 60 to 90 minute game? Is there enough there? That is going to be the key whether to whether we think it's a treasure or a trap, Sean. Go on then. 
I am going treasure for Yukon Airways. I love the theme. I love the thought that's gone into it. I think it will be tight enough. The, so it's not a full, it's no Crystal Palace. I'm not diving face first and then, ah, I'm just going, yeah, I'll have a bit of that on my plate and I'll give it a go. I wasn't expecting massive amounts just when I picked this one. I thought it looked quite nice. It was a nice theme, but that, that was about it. When I dive, dive into it, yes, it, I love the fact that it's got some passion behind it. I love that you can manipulate almost everything in the game and everything has a workaround. I think it'd be a really easy game to get into. I think it's got bags and bags of charm and I think it has got a little bit of meat on its bones as well. So for me, Yukon Airways is a definite treasure and I would hope to pick it up at Essen. You like a bit of meat on the bones, don't you? I do. I'm all about the meat. (laughs) (laughs) That's 12 games uh, treasure hunted. Sean, and we're going to have more coming in Treasure Hunts. We are, and we're eventually going to get round to doing our top 10 with Matthew. <laughs> From last year, and it's October. But ignore that. We're just <laughs> really dwelling on this. <laughs> that should be hot on the heels of this episode. So this will be out midweek. That one should be out, hopefully, at the beginning of the week after. And then there'll be a treasure hunt hot on the heels of that as well. And then we'll see how many more we can squeeze in before SM, because it's getting close, Sean. It is getting a bit tasty, Ronan. A little bit tasty. But I think our schedule is, is looking okay. It's relatively calm at the moment. I have got quite a few preview videos still to go up, though. So there's a few up already, folks, on YouTube. There's an SM 2019 playlist. There's only a handful on there. There will be a few more before the show itself and then obviously afterwards we'll I'll straight into producing more of them and there'll be loads out coming in the two three four weeks after SM where you will get more of an idea and be able to see the components and the rules and I'll chat through them quickly and of course Sean we will be reporting now we're only going for two days we've got lots of people to see we've got a couple of stints in the Dice Tower booth mm-hmm. and we've got loads of stuff to do so we're not going to be podcasting from Essen I believe Oh, you never know. I might bring the computer along just to see how we feel. <laughs> okay, you're feeling masochistic. I think we're going to be punching games out all evening. Probably, so. quite possibly. We'll see how we go. But I think on maybe the Monday or Tuesday after Essen, there should be a show out in which we'll talk about the games we've played uh, over the course of that weekend. And that should give you more of an idea of what has impressed us. We'll have a chance once we get back to play a few games. Lovely. Okay, so should we let these poor people go? We should. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Ronan. Thanks, everyone who's listening. Absolutely. And as always, we are proud members of the Dice Tower Network. Go there and to the Dice Tower itself, gaming goodness galore. If you wish to download our podcast, we are on Podbean, Stitcher, iTunes, and Spotify. We also have our youtube channel where ronan diligently works at his pit stop videos i chip in with the odd one and there's occasional convention coverage on social media we have a facebook page we have a instagram page and we are most active on our twitter page at game pit podcast if you wish to email us the email address is the game pit podcast at gmail.com but as we always say, the best place to catch us is probably onboard Game Geek in the guilds. Just look for our guild and fire a few questions our way. We're more than happy to answer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Music by E. Aaron. 
Essen Boy. Boy, boy, Essen Boy. boy.